Also, disclaimer, like just to put it out, I have to be done in an hour and 40 minutes, which I know sounds silly to have to say, but last time it was like two hours or something. So uh, I got to keep because I got to get my... Yeah, I would only for the my own editing sanity. I would love for this to be less <laughs> than two hours. That would be fantastic. Yeah. And if it gets to be like 245 my time and we're still talking, I may just politely like I may just have to go because I got to get my kid from school. This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm once again with Josh Basse and Reed Dent to see how God's presence shows up in surprising ways throughout the tabernacle. Yes, and uh, unlike last week where you had me and Rent on the same joint, this one is going to be at least somewhat shorter because we are under a very literal deadline. Um, <laughs> in fact, all, all you people out there who listen to this at 1.5 speed, you may not need to do that for this episode because <laughs> we're going to have to run through so much stuff so quick. So hold on to your hats, folks. <laughs> I mean, I would say I don't think it's humanly possible for it to be longer, but I don't want to be eating my words <laughs> in three hours, so... <laughs> oh, well, to to get to some words we would like to eat, let's go ahead and mm. read Genesis. <laughs> nice, Brent, kick nice, us off. Ni- nice one. <laughs> Day five. Well, I, I'm not really a seafood guy, but God said, <laughs> let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea. And every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Okay, now there's there's a lot of new, interesting things going on. Um, and I'll touch on all of them really briefly. I, I won't do the normal uh, interrogation that I normally do. So you can all breathe a sigh of relief. So first up, we have a couple things that happen in this uh, day of creation that don't really happen in any of the other days of creation. So first off, um, kind of out of order, um, we see blessing happen. This is the first time we see any kind of blessing. I was just thinking that. Yes. And also, this is the first time we see life mentioned. And now, you know, obviously in our modern scientific understanding of plants having life, there's a, a maybe we would say, oh, that should have been two episodes ago. But, you know, in the in the sense of how we relate to uh, this part of creation, we do see a distinction between plant life and life of, uh, you know, animals and fish and even insects. Um, and we can see that here in that, the, like, the language it uses around these living creatures is that they move. Like, literally, the term for them is movers. <laughs> like, uh, uh, it's often translated as, like, creeping things or something like that. But these are all things that are moving around, something that's, you know, not quite what plants do. So we have life. We have blessing. There's one other really unique thing that you wouldn't quite catch unless you could uh, look at this in Hebrew and and uh, know how to read it and all that. And that is the use of the word bara. 
So bara is the word for create that is um, kind of hues closest to how we often envision the creation narrative of that, you know, ex nihilo, like snap the fingers and it pops into existence. Um, it's used only one other time before this. And it's kind of in that preamble to day one where it said God created bara, the heavens and the earth. And it'll use it once again here, and then it doesn't use it again until it talks about the creation of humans. So each time bara is used, I, I've heard it kind of described as like there's there's a totally new thing, like almost like a a new dimension of creation. And in particular, it's used here when it talks about the uh, the sea giants. Um, which, oh man, we could get into that, but we're not gonna. Um, Which is too bad because I've actually always been drawn to that particular phrase. <laughs> but same, we'll save it for another time, I guess. Yes, um, and w- what is interesting about that is that uh, you know, if if you think about ancient people looking at waters and them just seeing all this stuff moving around, it's like you know, there's fish in there. We largely refer to them as fish. When we think seafood, we often think fish, but there's also all sorts of things scuttling around, you know, crustaceans and all sorts of weird stuff. But then you see these, you know, the bigger those things get, the more we can see in them like life, like something that is thinking and considering and doing things with intention, right? So there's that. Um, so man, God's doing, God's making some big moves here. We, we kind of have an, an explosion of creation. Um, so if we want to break it down to the elements, we are back to a water day. Like we talked about before, you know, we have the, the first half, it's about separating light, water, then land. And here we have God of filling last time light, now water. So the water is being literally filled with living, moving things. And what's interesting is it's not just fish being created, it's also birds. Um, And what the rabbis teach about this and and what is apparent in the Hebrew is that the birds and the fish are both created in the water, which which might sound a little weird, but it's going to be really important for how we understand um, this this day. And that there are, uh, you know, fish created to be where they are. And then there are these birds that fly up out of the water. And what's really interesting about the birds, if we zoom in on them, is that they kind of uh, like transcend the divisions between these spaces. They fly up in the heavens. And if we remember back to day two, and we think about, oh yeah, we were talking about waters and we were talking about heavens and we were talking about the movement between those spaces, we might start to recognize that birds are going to be a really big image uh that we should be paying attention to so what's going on with the birds uh so to zoom back out again god's interacting with water god's saying let the waters start moving with life let them start swarming with all sorts of little critters fish and other stuff and birds then god says i'm going to barah i'm going to create this new thing these sea giants which we could you know again we're not gonna dive into that um, and then God blesses for the first time. God, uh, blesses in terms of procreation, uh, filling, being fruitful, multiplying. And what's interesting here is that, you know, we've, again, we've kind of already talked about 
procreation or, or reproduction, certainly with plants, but there's something different here. What's interesting though, is the distinction between how God blesses the fish and the birds. Now here's where I am going to require some co-host participation. If we were going to talk about like homes, the fish's home is water, water. What is the bird's home? Uh, I mean, I want to say air. A nest. Oh, sure. A nest. Right. Oh, perfect. You both went exactly the two directions I wanted you to go, which is like, well, we associate birds with the sky, but they don't actually like live there permanently. They have to have a nest. They have to have a place on the ground. Mm. And this is where it gets really interesting because God specifically blesses them to multiply on the earth, not up in the heavens, not where they, they fly around, um, not what we might consider their, their domain. Um, they are, their blessing doesn't extend up into the heavens. Their blessing is rooted to the earth. And what I think is really interesting and important to remember about this, especially if we keep in mind day two and the idea of like, some of us are blessed to be in a position where we can be the rain. We can be the, the water that's uh, above rather than the waters that are below. But in that scenario, you don't get the love that God is teaching. You don't uh, interact with the blessing God has in store for us. If we just stay up there, there's not actually anything that can sustain a bird's life that's just up in the sky. It needs to come back down to earth. That's where its blessing is. Earth kind of being this middle point between the sky and the sea. It's like the the division. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also the air being the division between the yes, waters. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like the birds are this some weird like connection between all of these different domains. Uh-huh. And man, if we've been thinking about where things have been going in the tabernacle, who have we been talking about? The priests. The priests. Exactly. And the priests are similarly, they, they can go into the tent. In fact, they can sometimes go into the Holy of Holies. No one else can go into those places, but the priests also just can't stay in there. They're supposed to be moving around back and forth. Um, so to kind of summarize <laughs> what we're seeing in just, day five here. Just every week, Josh, <laughs> how, how are these so many details and so many connections that I've never seen before? I know. I mean, it's, it just blows my mind. Literally, it was it, once Marty said there's a connection there. I'm like, all right, let me test this out. And as soon as I like started putting the pieces together, it was like, Oh my gosh, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's insane. Uh, so yeah. So if we want to summarize what this day is saying, if we pull away all the pre stuff, all the stuff we kind of already know, because we've been bouncing back and forth between these parallel creation stories. If we look at this, we can say, you know, um, there's, uh, uh, God's created people differently. Some people live and move and breathe in the water, in the chaos. They're just living their normal life. Um, they aren't the ones who are going to be the prophets or the priests or the great leaders, the, the quote unquote, you know, great people of history. Um, but, uh, they are like the root of the life that God has created and they're blessed where they are. They don't need to like, you know, if you're just a regular Joe, regular person who is, just living life, 
trying your best to follow God. Like God isn't asking anything more for you. There's blessing that sits on top of you right in that space. And for the people who have uh, more elevated tasks to go do, who, who need to cross those boundaries, they only get their blessing. If at the end of the day, they remember they have to be grounded. They have to be right on that. They have to be on the shoreline, you know? You have to come back and be near to those people who are in a different spot than you and who who can benefit from your insight or from your excess, your surplus, like what, however you want to, whatever lens you want to, or however you want to turn this lens onto your life. Um, that is, that is crucial that those among us who, who, or, or whatever, uh, to whatever capacity you feel called beyond where other people can go. Um, it can't just, that isn't a space that's just for you to go party and be cool and do a barrel roll and a flip and, and, you know, fly around like a cool bird. At some point you have to land, you have to ground it. And that is where God blesses you. Your fruitfulness is actually when you're right next to the people who aren't you. So, with that being said, let's get ourselves over to the, the tabernacle. I'm going to be reading Exodus 29 bit by bit. Unfortunately, we're, we're not unfortunately, but uh, we, we got a lot of text to get through. So we need to get moving. Exodus 29, this is what you are to do to consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect. And from the finest wheat flour, make round loaves without yeast, thick loaves without yeast, and with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves without yeast, and brushed with olive oil. Put them in a basket, and present them along with the bull and the two rams. Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Take the garments, and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So... We are being introduced to the rest of this chapter, which is kind of going to follow this this kind of opening thing. We're going to see sacrifices. We're going to see these rituals of inaugurating Aaron and his sons as priests. And uh, there's going to be a lot of a lot of interesting stuff in here. Um, and we we got to keep in mind too uh, everything we talked about in the previous episode, you know, we just heard them run through that list of garments again. If we, uh, if we didn't remember it from last time and, you know, we have to keep in mind, like these are already telling a story, like how much of what we talked about yesterday was just about presence. And now we're getting into putting that presence into a context, into the context of how they're going to interact with the people, what they're going to be doing in this space, how they are, how they are going to fill this space, how they are going to move around in it, or to, to really pull from day five, how are they going to bring this tabernacle space to life? And, uh, we're going to see that it's going to take us through a couple different sacrifices. So let's go ahead and start walking through those, Brent. 
Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it in the Lord's presence, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood, and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. Then take all the fat on the internal organs, the long lobe of the litter, and both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. But burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its intestines outside the camp. It is a sin offering. All right. So offering number one, we ended on the the, the identification of it. This is a sin offering, which um, I'm going to just contextualize real quick uh, as we run through these, like the different types of sacrifices and their general uh, vibe. This is not necessarily going to be exhaustive. There's a lot of details to this, but a sin. Well, offering. actually, oh yeah. Back in back in episode 294 with L, one of our John episodes, um, she did a series on sacrifices. Oh man! But it actually didn't That's get right. to like this element of it. We talked about like, um, I guess you would say like the postures of offering a sacrifice, and then the different animals that you could use for a sacrifice. But we didn't talk about like. The difference between a sin offering and a food offering and a wave offering and all that stuff. So okay, it, you yeah, know, it, no, it may surprise. This, this is a good overlap, I think. <laughs> I I am not fully caught up on session six, so I have unfortunately not heard that one. Um, and now I'm sweating because man, I'm sure if I <laughs> knew all of Elle's little tidbits, we would, I mean, maybe it's a good thing because I might have 10 times as much to say about this. Um, well, if, you know, if there's anything wrong, then she can fix it, uh, when she joins I, us next I week. I know that firsthand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's dive into it. So we have a sin offering, which sin offerings by and large, those are to cover unintentional sins. Um, and in particular, if you're bringing a bull, that is something that someone in leadership, particularly sp- the spiritual leaders over the entire nation or the council. So basically the people that are the, like the, the big top of the hierarchy people, the people making all the decisions, um, they are responsible for like, you know, if a high priest, uh, uh, even if he like misspoke, but like if they, if they give instructions to the people that aren't accurate and the people therefore mess up, like the, the priests have to be responsible for that. They're they're uh, the, the buck stops with them, so to speak. And it's a little bit interesting because they are, you know, being inaugurated as leaders. So they haven't messed up yet. Like, you know, they haven't been in this leadership position and so we might be wondering, like, why are we doing this? Why why do they need to do this? And symbolically, I think it's supposed to uh, to speak about, like, that these are, you know, these are human beings somehow being transformed into uh, this priestly role where, like we talked about last week, you know, they aren't there for themselves. They're not, they're not bringing their own grief or their own baggage and trauma. They're not bringing their own agenda into this space. They are being transformed into something that, uh, that, that carries the nation on their shoulders like that. This is a, this is a big transformation. And so I think by bringing the sin offering and there's probably a lot more nuance to it. So don't let this be the end of the conversation, but this is an acknowledgement of the burden of the place they're stepping into. Like we are, we are from the get go atoning for the fact that like we might uh, make mistakes 
and we are already like taking the hit for that. Like, like it, it's not just a, a, a statement of like, Hey, you know, we're, you know, Pobody's nerfect. We're, we're going to make some mistakes. It's like actually putting your money where your mouth is and saying like, Hey, we're, we're upfront just going to uh, accept the fact that we are going to make mistakes and we're going to act as if we already made a mistake mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like go through that, that motion. So there's kind of a, a, moment of humility here and also like probably in a ritual sense this is likely being used to cover for like hey like you know aaron has been probably a mover i mean he was definitely heavily involved with the exodus on a leadership kind of level a very prominent figure so this is also probably practically acting as like yeah you know like this we're doing something new here we we are gonna um use this mechanism of atonement to move on from like the prior relationship you may have had with Aaron. Like they're inviting you to see Aaron in a different way. Okay. That's sin offering. Let's keep rolling here. Okay. Verse 15, take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it and take the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces and wash the internal organs and the legs putting them with the head and the other pieces. Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. Yes. So we have a burnt offering. Now, burnt offerings are very unique. Um, it is. It doesn't have an express purpose because it's it's kind of a little bit of a loophole offering. So like I said before, sin offerings um, and other offerings like it could only be brought for sins that were unintentional or for some other reason were mitigated. If you committed an intentional sin, there is no sacrifice that will simply just straight up atone for that. You, it, it, it needs repentance to be atoned for if it's intentional. Um, and if we'll notice this sacrifice at the end doesn't mention atonement at any point, uh, it talks about it being a pleasing aroma but there is no uh, atonement when the smoke goes up before God. And that's because this sacrifice was like a, a, uh, a way for someone who did commit an intentional sin to express repentance. It wouldn't give them atonement, but it was a way of using the system, not just having to go out and do it on their own, but being part of the community, being within the sacrificial system. And that's why the the sacrifice is totally burnt up. Like no one gets anything out of it. Not the priests, not the person bringing it. No one eats it. Um, And it's also interesting that that is also considered a good scent to God, like stuff burning. Like that's not usually the good smell of stuff cooking that you would normally smell on the altar. And it's because it's it's this moment of re, like open repentance of a statement that you are trying to change, and and that's where it's like it you don't it doesn't just have to be for people who sinned intentionally. You could bring a burnt offering if you like just wanted to make a big change in your life, or like maybe you hadn't technically committed a sin, but you felt like you needed to grow or make some serious changes. This is the sacrifice you would bring to communicate that, to like make it into a, a spiritual moment that could impact you. And so, you know, very fitting for this moment. Um, and we kind of touch on a couple different things here. Like first we dealt with like, Hey, there might be unresolved issues in the community between you and Aaron. Um, 
we need to be able to like set that aside to create a little bit of a buffer between that and Aaron. And now we're saying like an Aaron, Aaron, you know, he may have also intentionally done something or have something in his heart. This is a moment that's inviting Aaron to, to internally like accept this new role to, to um, be transformed by what is happening. Does that make sense? Yes. I do have one specific detail question. Oh yeah. So with the bull, you take some of the blood and put it on the horns with your finger and then you pour out the rest of it. But then with the ram, you take the blood and you splash it against the sides of the altar. Why, yes. Why the different things with the blood? This like, is, is a this, great question. It's just, I mean, we're, we've got more to, to get to, so maybe there'll be more blood in more places. Maybe it's just like, oh, do, do by you, the time we're done, everything's going to be covered in blood. Um, but Brent, yeah, there, it just seems there like... There is going to be a lot of weird stuff happening with blood. Uh, you, you have... You have not spoken into being, but you have described exactly what's going to happen. Um, yeah. And, and to be perfectly honest, like I have, um, struggled with this for a long time. I have not personally figured out like the, the exact symbolic spiritual meaning of like putting the blood on the horns versus splashing it around the sides on the base versus sprinkling and bringing it in and where you bring it into like, What's interesting, especially with the conversation we're having, is that blood, like there, there's power ascribed to blood because uh, elsewhere in the Torah, it talks about how the nefesh, the the soul or the spirit is in the blood. And the word there for spirit or soul, nefesh, it's there's multiple words for spirit and soul and internal being. Nefesh is specifically talking about like the that which like gives life it's often used or translated as um lifeblood and that is the specific word that was just used for the first time in genesis of like when it says living things the the hebrew phrase is nefesh chaya like nefesh is is it, it, it's alive it's it's moving around it's a being that is alive um so that is where like it, it blood has that kind of powerful association with it and um things like like the horns of the altar horns are also very symbolic and generally are associated with power or strength um as far as like parsing out the individual details to like specifically what is this communicating to an audience perhaps i i honestly i i, I big shrug for me i'm still piecing that one together i have a question Mm. Um, it, and it's, it's about, I guess, uh, the, the first offering, the kind of unintentional sin offering that you talked about, mm -hmm. it comes, it comes from that, but maybe it's about sacrifices more generally, uh, as well. And the question is this, do you think Josh that, uh, I guess who is the offering for, mm. is it, is it for God's sake? Like, does God need us or does God need them to do this? so that he can like be good with them. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to hold these unintentional things against you. Like I'm going to remember them until you take something outside and burn it. Oh, I or, see. Yeah, yeah. or is it for, is it like, does God need to do it for God, need them to do it for God's sake? Or does God need them to do it for their sake? Like, is it for, 
Is it for them to cause them to pause and kind of internally take stock and remember, Yeah. okay, we're beginning from a position of uh, imperfection. We're beginning from a position of, we could already be making mistakes. Like it's a, it's, it's to, mm-hmm. it's to like um, cultivate some humility in them. Cause I, I think there's a, um, I think some people think of the sacrificial system as, well, it used to be that God needed people to do these things. Otherwise, like, right. You know, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up because there's a lot of nuance there. So on like, this is going to be an oversimplification, but to, to give a short answer to your question, it is, it is for the person. And I know, uh, you know, prior in the podcast, we talk a lot about conscience cleansing, which mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. is a part of it, but I, I think it actually is much bigger. So the word atonement means to cover, which unfortunately in Christian theology has come to like fit with this idea of like sin being a permanent stain that has to be hidden for you to be acceptable to God. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the language of Leviticus, that's not what it's describing. It talks about a separation between you and your sin, separating you from your sin, like the the way that like, you know, a, a, a jacket it covers you from the cold or, or a house, you know, like it, it uh, is, huh. it is protection. So it, there is a kind of a guilty conscience thing of like, um, there might be things that, uh, that you're holding on to, even if you've been forgiven and everything's good with everyone mm-hmm. else. But, th- and this is where it gets complicated and the short answer doesn't really cover all of it because this is a, this is a holistic process. Like, um, as I understand it, like where God fits into all of this is that, um, like for you to come in into the tabernacle, uh, and to offer a sacrifice at God's table that you get to partake in or that the priest gets to partake in is in just like broad strokes. That's you being invited to God's house for a meal. Mm. And in, like very clearly throughout Leviticus and here, you can see God engages with the smell unlike most of the other gods where sacrifices were the literal food for the gods here there's a clear distinction god is not eating this is not for god's benefit in that sense um it is primarily for for you to to like you know I don't know about you, but like, if you mess up something with your friend, you say something without thinking and hurt someone's feelings, like they can tell you all day long, like, oh, we're good. We're good. We're good. But it's not until like we go back into a normal rhythm, we hang out, we watch a movie, whatever. And like, I feel that familiar, like, oh, we're laughing. We're, Mm -hmm. we're actually good because I'm spending time together with you in this intimate way that is proving it to me. And I think that is more what this hues to like God saying, okay, you know what? Come over to my house for a meal. Um, you know, sit down, talk with a priest, be surrounded by your community. So, so mm, it's, mm-hmm. it is a primary, like atonement, I think is for the guilty party because fundamentally atonement separates you from your sin. It, it's protecting you from your sin, not just in terms of guilt, but also in terms of like breaking habits, breaking cycles, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of other ways that sin, like sin is a vicious cycle. It is hard to get away from, even if it, even if we take away the, the, the moral aspect of it, like 
the harm that is caused there both to ourself and others has a way of reinforcing itself and happening over and over and over again. And this tries to not just stop that process, but reverse it. And so, yeah. So what's happening here is like the community is also being invited to participate. This is also for the community so that, you know, but both for the sake of the person so they can, they can like the, the first thing you do when you bring a sacrifice, like we said, you put your hand as we read earlier, you put your your hand on the animal's head, and uh, for a normal like sin sacrifice, you would confess what you did like publicly while the animal's throat is cut, and it's like an intense moment where you are just <laughs> laying it bare and feeling the reality. Like I brought suffering, I brought hurt into the world. I'm mm-hmm. hearing the sound of something being hurt, something dying, that is permanent and it can't be changed. And then, but that's just the beginning of the process. And that's not where atonement happens. Atonement happens when your sacrifice has been lifted up onto the altar and the smell is going up and you're smelling it too, of course, because you're there. And as you smell it, you know, God's smelling this. God is, we're we're good. It's a good smell to God, right? That's what we just heard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I would say at root, it's about, it's about the, the sinner being like, helping kind of cut them out of the sin, helping them like be free of whatever it was that was pulling them into that. Um, and, uh, and to bring the community into that too, which obviously is like something that's part of the health of the community for them to be able to speak into that moment and be present at that moment, both people who are close to the person who's bringing the sacrifice, but also just strangers that just happen to be at the temple or tabernacle that day who are going to hear part of your story and be able to talk with you about it. And depending on what kind of offerings are being brought that day, which we'll get into next with the peace offering, people are also bringing offerings uh, from a place of celebration because things are going well. And those people have a lot of excess food that they are commanded to get rid of within a time period, meaning they've got to invite people to come feast with them. And so it creates this little ecosystem where people that are going through suffering or hurt are being held by people that are in a healthier place and are standing alongside people who maybe are even in a worse spot that are really trying to change their life in a significant way. All those people at all those different inflection points in life are are in community tightly and being gathered together. And who's also there? The priest, the mm-hmm. one to to actually like move them from one stage to the next and to to represent God's presence to them. Um, which is a big part of why the priests get to eat some of these sacrifices um, and, you know, kind of uh, uh, really make true that like shared meal idea, but um, also to be there to, to, you know, like, like we talked about before, guide them through the process, help them navigate atonement. Cause it's a, it's a tricky thing. Um, you know, it doesn't just end at confessing and saying you won't ever do it again. Repentance is a lot more complicated than that. And atonement is a lot more complicated than that. And the pre- that's what the, that's why the priests are there. That's a, <laughs> that's a good short answer. Um, <laughs> no, actually that's, that's good. And what you said about, uh, you know, how things aren't right until we can like get back into our normal rhythms and how this is like being invited for a meal that resonates really strongly with me. Um, that's an experience that I know, 
and also, I, I guess I really appreciate you highlighting the kind of solidarity that the practice mm. of these sacrifices creates in the community. Because I, I usually just imagine it as like, you know, me. Uh, but uh, when you when you consider that there is a community of people that are all coming here for this same purpose, and it's like, you know, we're we're together in this, and I can see and share it with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that just, that, that just creates a really good picture. Um, and the way that it has the, this, this practice of sacrifice has just kind of, kind of some natural organic, um, yes, I don't want, they're not consequences cause they're good. You know what I'm like some yeah. benefits that just happen naturally, uh, by the fact that you're there together. So that's really good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of my favorite things about it is like digging into that stuff and, and being able to recognize like, oh, hey, I've had experiences like that. And that's when I did actually feel like things were good. Like when mm-hmm. I could confess fully and really feel fully that emotion of guilt and then have someone respond to it and speak to it. Or like, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like actually the things that actually like resolve relationships being described here in like a ritual form. Yeah. It, yeah. To me, it's just like, okay, yeah, that is, that is why like this is what what I experience is of a piece with what they were experiencing to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've kind of already covered it, but uh, yeah, let's go ahead and read about this next one. Th- this one is going to be a little weird because they call it by a couple different names uh, because there's like different umbrellas that sacrifices are in. So this is under the broader category of a uh, shlamim offering or a peace offering. And there's a bunch of different kinds of peace offerings. This one is called an inauguration offering, but by and large, these are the ones you bring your own free will. You aren't obligated to it's, it's for celebration. You're eating a big, uh, this is where you have like more food than you know what to do with. And you need to invite other people to eat it with you. That's what's happening in this next one. Um, and, but there's a lot more pieces that go into it. So Brent, why don't we go ahead and dive into that starting in verse 19? Well, just a note on this, uh, these different types of offerings is there's different ways of saying them. Like the NIV at the end of verse 18 says a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented Mm. to the Lord, which kind of goes against what you're talking about. Like this isn't food for God. It's like, okay, well, what's going on there then? It's interesting. It says food offerings. I think the literal word there is fire. Yeah. Well, and there's even debate in the NET. It says an offering made by fire to the Lord. Um, but there in the footnote, it's talking about like, that's traditionally how it's been translated, but there's potentially some other stuff going on. It might be simpler than that, whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's lots of ways of like categorizing these things and saying these things. So it's definitely worth, um, studying out these different oh, types yeah. because we're going to, we're going to see a lot more of them. And, and I hope what we're showing through this series is like, not only, can we just like maybe have faith that all these details mean something to someone? But like, if you look at it enough and try and get in the mindset of like, okay, how would this work? What would it be like to experience it? Um, it it's a lot easier to maybe pull at those threads and be like, oh, this is, you know, this is what's going on here. Um, and then give those details some, some real, real legitimate meaning. Okay, uh, reading on in verse 19. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take some of its blood, and put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then, Then splash blood against the sides of the altar. 
and take some blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. Yeah, I told you some weird <laughs> stuff was going to be happening with blood. <laughs> well, I don't, what's, what's weird? I don't, it seems fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not part, that's my skincare routine. What are you talking about? Um, so, uh, yeah, what the heck is going on here? Um, so like we said, we had a, a peace offering and this inauguration offering that's kind of uh, more celebratory. But then, like, now we're smearing blood places and we're, like, flicking it on these beautiful, like, lavish clothes that we just spent, you know, last week, a whole chapter, like, going over in detail. Now they're, like, splattered with blood and oil, which, like, I mean, that's, like... Like how much more of a stain can you get than getting oil on it and blood? Like that's, that's yeah, the, the weavers who made the garments are standing there excited <laughs> to see them in use. And they're like, why are you kidding me right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and to be honest, I, um, again, because like, I, I don't really feel like I have a good explanation of the different like modes of usage, the sprinkling part. I, I don't, know what to make of that specifically other than it's interesting to me that they're doing this with the peace offering and i think that is the first thing to really settle on like it's that peace offering that that is the thing that uh, is the heart of the the communal aspect the celebration aspect that's the part of it that can actually like redeem in a different way people who are there because they are at a low point in their life and they're suffering and need some healing. Like this is the thing that this is the blood that is being used to mark their, their literal bodies and their clothes of office. Like they are being covered. And well, I was about to say drenched drenches, a little strong word, but they're like literally being covered and their, their anointing oil is mixed in. Like there is an identification between the priest and this specific kind of sacrifice. And I think it's because, you know, if we remember anything about God and how God feels about celebration and uh, the the sanctified party, I think we see that reflected here. God saying, like, this is the one, like, let this be the thing that you identify with. Like, you know, you, you don't need to see yourselves in terms of like the the judges, the, the, the counselors helping, you know, people navigate all their, all their crud, like, rem, like keep your eyes on this moment. This is the moment you want to bring people with. This is the moment I really want you present. I want you to be there in the celebration. And interestingly, um, normally sacrifices are kind of like divided up evenly, but for the peace offering specifically, if you look in Leviticus, the priest who offers it has to be the one to eat it, which kind of nudges the priest to be involved in this party that's happening. Like not anyone else, the guy who, you know, was officiating this party, uh, it sticks around and eats, you know what I'm saying? Like there, there's a, there's a, a more personal connection there than you see with the other forms of sacrifice. Um, but real quick, let's uh, let's talk about the ear and the thumb and the big toe thing. Um, so does that does that image or any part of that image maybe like uh, stick out to you guys? Like, does it does it ring any bells? Uh, I mean, the ear one makes me think of uh, the psalm. I think it's a psalm mm. where it's like you have 
carved out ears for me or something like oh, that. It's like, you know, okay. this idea, you know, just that, you know, they're the people of hearing. And so it, wait, and is that one listed first? Yeah, it yes, is the ear. It is. And so it's, uh, you know, the idea that I get is like, it starts with hearing the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just the significance of the ear in like the Jewish thinking. Yeah. And let, let's actually, let's follow that. Cause that, that's not where I was headed with it, but uh, that's a great point. So it starts with hearing. And then what is listed next? As uh, uh, the hand, the hand. Yep. The, the thumb. hand. Yeah. Yep. Like what you're, what you're doing. And then finally right. the feet, like where you are, mm-hmm. which is interesting because like, as a, you know, logical Westerner, my first thought is like, well, wait, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're not in the right place, like you got to go to the right place first to do it. And what I like about this is that it, it's not like a literal process, but more like you have to, you have to hear before you can start doing. And Mm -hmm. that happens before you start doing the thing in the right place. Like mm. you need to learn how to get your hands dirty. Like, like we talk about this all the time when it comes to studying the text, like you just need to get your hands dirty. You may not be at the right passage that is going to speak to you or whatever. Like you may not know where to go or how to navigate it, but just learning how to play with it and get your hands dirty and notice a remez here or there, even if it's the wrong one, even if you're in the wrong spot, that's the next step you have to do before you can go to the right place. And in our culture where doing is supposed to have a direct line to, to profit, to fruit, to outcome, that is such a difficult thing for us to be okay with, but it's, it's necessary. It has to go through the hands because if you just show up at the place and you don't have anything, you don't know how to do your job, then, then it, it, it does more damage, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, and it makes you, you can, uh, the the idea that comes to my mind is that you you can start doing right where you are. Uh, mm-hmm. That you don't need to have these like grandiose ideas of yes. you know, like oh, oh the places you'll go, yes, and like the mountains you'll climb and what like you just right where you are in in the daily routine in the small uh, quiet unsexy places of you know just like your family. Like start with your family. Start mm-hmm. where you're in your home. You like do it here. And then, yeah, 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 that's, that's what comes to my mind. Absolutely. And, and like with a lot of this stuff too, start with yourself. Like, you know, you, mm-hmm. if you can't bring this stuff to yourself, it's, it, it's it, a lot of times we feel it's easier to like, you know, give advice to other people. But, you know, I, I think a lot of times that's just because we don't feel it on the other side. We don't get to feel how they respond to it. And when we apply these truths to ourselves, we feel it. We, we know what it's like when we, when we, try to work it out. And yeah, but that, that's so good. Start with where you're at. Okay. So going back to this image, think, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to you guys one last time. So think about the ear, think about the, the blood on it and specifically think about the earlobe where, where have maybe those elements come together somewhere else in Torah earlobe. How about this? I'll add another one. This is going to become very shortly a really big theme of this episode. And it was also a big theme in the day two episode. And that is doors, doorways, gates. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the blood over the doorway. and The blood over the doorway. But there was – so after they left Egypt, they were given a bunch of commands about how uh, to uh, treat their slaves. 
And there's, you know, all these things you have to let him go after six years. That's like the end of the, the contract, so to speak. But the slave, if they wanted to, could decide to permanently be a slave. And in order to do that, they had to go to the doorway of the house and they would uh, uh, like put a put an awl, like a sharp instrument uh, and like pierce yeah. the ear into the doorway. And like on a surface level, it it is a callback to you weren't you weren't uh, off at all, um, Reed, because it, it was supposed to be a play on the image of like, oh, I brought you out of the doorway of slavery, and now like you heard me call you out of slavery, but you want to get stuck at the door and not actually pass out into freedom. Like it, it was kind of a right, like I'm binding, I'm binding myself to you, kind of thing. Yeah, and and kind of like between God and the slave, God was saying like, if this is what you really want, like I'll let you do it, but you got to realize like this is not what I want for you. Like this, I I would rather you live in a different way. Okay, yeah. I that's Exodus 21 where that comes yes. from. I was thinking it was after the tabernacle, but it it is actually before. So It is before. It's it's weirdly one of the first things they hear when they leave Egypt. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> yeah, and, and this I think is really instructive of like how like if this is the image in their heads, which like I, I have to imagine it's at least partially there. What is this saying? It's saying that the priest is a slave. And this goes back to what we were talking about last time about this egolessness that a priest has to have. Like you, um, you don't just have to hear like, like if we think about a normal slave in a, in a house, which like it isn't, uh, just to speak on this quickly, isn't quite as bad as we often imagine it. Like it, it's in a lot of ways, very similar to like, you know, hourly work type jobs where, you know, you, you have a boss that tells you what to do. You aren't farming your own land. You aren't your own boss. That would have been considered kind of the norm. So if, uh, if you're a slave, like you get told what to do and then you go do it, but how you do it and like, the the precise way you go about doing it like you 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 kind of figure it out yourself right like at, at your job you don't like like when your boss is telling you how to do every single step we call that micromanaging right like that's not usually seen as part of the deal there does that make sense mm-hmm. yep this is different god this is god saying you don't just have to this is not like a slave where you just have to listen and obey to your master's commands this is not just doing your job and what your boss tells you to do. It's doing it in the the way with your hands. How you do it has to be, as I say, where you do it has to be exactly as I say. Like there, there's this, this like ultra slave. I hate using the word slave because it's, it's so different um, than, you know, how we had slavery in our own history. Um, and, but, but like the, 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 maybe we should say servant, like the, the kind of servant that a priest is called to be is like, that. this is a totalizing thing. Like they aren't supposed to be performing their service, like with their own style and spin on it. Like this is, they, they have to really take seriously. They are representing God and God sees that as going down to like the, the minutia of how you perform these tasks. Does that make sense? Mm. The other thing about this is, like I said before, you know, um, like being a slave in that culture was kind of akin to like modern day, like having being being like an hourly worker where like you at the end of the day, you get paid, but you aren't seeing the fruits of your labor. Like, you know, it's the 
the guy whose land you're working, he's the one that gets to keep the crop. You just get, you know, uh, money for your time. Uh, and in the same sense, like uh, in that way, like a, a slave isn't working for their own personal growth, right? They're working to grow someone else's uh, property. Yes. And similarly, like, like what we talked about last time, like priests are not there for their own spiritual enrichment. That is not what the position is about. They, they are not like it got, their spiritual growth is not like what God's interested in developing. Um, not to say that like intimacy with God and like how we understand it, like that should of course be happening, but it's not the point of the position. The point of the position is not for them to become more spiritual. It's for them to be portraying God to the people. It's not about their, their, uh, their own growth or their own freedom or what they want to do with their life. Does that make sense? Like this is a, this is a role that's being taken very seriously. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that would preach really well uh, <laughs> in a lot of places, you know, <laughs> not not just spiritual benefit, but really like any kind of benefit. You know, it's this oh, yeah. the, the idea is that you are there to to serve, uh, to be a bridge. Yes. And it's not about your spiritual benefit. It's not about the way that people like hold you up or see you or you grow in their eyes. It's not about any of that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. which is so important because, you know, they do talk about a lot of things like, Oh, these clothes are for this like glorious, beautiful presence, but that presence isn't theirs. They're supposed to be like an empty vessel in that regard. And again, I, I, you know, again, because we're talking very specifically about priests, we have to remember that, like this part of this message, we have to take with a grain of salt and realize that a big chunk of this is for spiritual leadership. And I think right. particularly what we've just been talking about, like, especially on the spiritual side of it is like that, that is so important and so missing, like not even just the, the seedier, like profit motive side of how like sometimes spiritual leadership is not actually about the spiritual benefit of uh, a congregation or whoever's being led, but also like, it's not even there for the spiritual leader to grow. Like they are supposed to be setting that aside, not that they should neglect their spiritual life far from it, but that that isn't a, a good justification like that. That's not a, a need that gets to be put above the the needs of the people you're leading and that's like that's a a level of responsibility that i i'm not sure if i've ever seen that like really played out um mm. in a way where where like like obviously a lot of spiritual leaders sacrifice a lot in terms of their time and things like that but there there is a there is an attitude that is present here that I, uh, and a posture towards leadership and like the divestment of ego that is just so hard to have in the, in the kind of culture we have that is individualistic and therefore very egocentric. What about my, my tax breaks, Josh, my tax breaks. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of the other funny things like the <laughs> Levites, they, they were essentially like, they, they couldn't own land outside of like a few like Levite cities. They were pretty much like outside of the regular economy, which like if we, if, if the tax breaks went along with that, that would be cool. But you know, uh, a lot of real estate <laughs> deals and stuff that could, uh, a lot of personal money-making benefits that what can if, go into it in our world. <laughs> what, what if it was the other way where like, what if you were a professional quote unquote professional minister, you couldn't own property. 
yeah. because we make it all about like, oh yeah, I got my my tax breaks for my housing and all that. Anyway, yeah, I was exactly. Being, exactly. It's kind of like middle of the road, uh, rigged up solution. It, it doesn't. It, yeah. it it creates a lot of problems. And yeah, we could we could dive into that. But I'm really not. I'm not trying to talk to the spiritual leaders right now. I'm trying to talk to everyone else. Yeah. And uh, though uh, like to whatever degree you see yourself in the role of a priest, like we should keep this in mind, but we shouldn't necessarily uh, like we, we need to have it in proportion. Like who are you leading? If you're leading a small group of, you know, junior high kids, like you definitely need a little pinch of this in there, but also like, uh, you know, it's, it's not as if you are like this high priest leading an entire nation. So that's the, that's the balance. You got to know where to kind of put the proportionality. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh shoot did we get there because we read up to verse 21 we uh let's oh man yeah let's keep reading let's start in verse 22 take from this ram the fat the fat tail the fat on the internal organs the long lobe of the liver both kidneys with the fat on them and the right thigh this is the ram for the ordination from the basket of bread made without yeast which is before the lord take one round loaf one thick loaf with olive oil mixed in and one thin loaf Put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons and have them wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then take them from their hands and burn them on the altar along with the burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a food offering presented to the Lord. Yes. And once again, um, like I think it's important to stop here just to appreciate that the peace offering here, the celebratory offering ends exactly the same way that the burnt offering does the one that that covers even like intentional sin that was like meant to cause suffering or harm and i think what's important about that is that like a lot of times we see like because we mush all these concepts together we we see like repentance for something that you did wrong as being like solely an issue of justice. Like you need to do this because it's the right thing to do, which to some extent, like there's a part of it that involves that, but there's also a part that involves you being transformed as an individual. And that doesn't look like justice because justice is like, Oh, like you, you ruined a relationship and you need to invest time to uh, really like, get to know this person, be humble enough to, to shoulder the emotional burden, or maybe, I don't know, you crash someone's car, you need to pay them for the car. Those are justice type issues where there's a, uh, a little bit more of a transactional thing when it comes to actual, like repentance, changing yourself, transforming on a fundamental level. It looks like worship. Like that's the kind of action it is. And God sees it as a worshipful kind of action. You're not just, you know, paying the bill for the damage you caused. You are allowing God to recreate and transform you. That is, that is worshipful. And I think it's important to to note how like God looks at both of those sacrifices in the same way. They're both good smelling to God, even though one is about, is like cooked meat about to be eaten. And one is like a charred animal. Um, those are both like regarded the same in God's eyes. And unfortunately we really got to keep moving because we are, we are, I don't know, 
a little over halfway through the chapter. <laughs> so let's keep it moving, Brent. <laughs> let's go to 26, I think we're at. 26. After you take the breast of the ram for Aaron's ordination, wave it before the Lord as a wave offering, and it will be your share. Consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belong to Aaron and his sons, the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. This is always to be the perpetual share from the Israelites for Aaron and his sons. It is the contribution the Israelites are to make to the Lord from their fellowship offerings. Mm, yes. And fellowship offerings there is the the peace offerings, which fellowship is a great word for it. Like it's it's community. It's spending time together. And that is the, this whole wave service, which the waving, that's another thing, just like with all the blood stuff. I don't I don't exactly know what it's supposed to be doing there. I, I, I got to throw up a big shruggy emoji on that. Um, there's definitely a lot of reading you could do out there if you are interested in that um but yeah ultimately this is um aaron and his sons the priests have like you know they they get to take chunks from other offerings just normally but it's again interesting that god calls out and specifically says like this is an eternal portion and it's from the it's from the peace offering it's again like god's asking them to keep their eyes on this like we want to bring people to this point we aren't just here like i mean i don't know I, i've known people who are like social workers and counselors and when your job is just that every day like it can be pretty hard to just like be the the one the 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 ditch digger through people's mess you know like helping them just get through the hard stuff and it's easy to to flatten that process when the goal in your mind is just dealing with the mess rather than looking further down the road and say, how can we get to, to this moment? How can we get to the feast? How can we get to the moment of celebration? Cause that's what this is actually pushing people towards. That's what God really wants to get us to. That's why God invited us over to have a party. So with that in mind, I think from here we get, a. uh, uh some well yeah let's go ahead and keep reading from verse 29 we're going to get some really important context to put this in the larger process that's going on Aaron's sacred garments will belong to his descendants so that they can be anointed and ordained in them the son who succeeds him as priest and comes to the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place is to wear them seven days yeah so this is a process that is repeated for an entire week which again we've said this so many times this whole thing every portion you look at it it has its own little fractals you could literally read this whole chunk of text through the lens of any one of these chapters we see right here what this is happening seven days of course like this is in and of itself, you could read the creation story as moving from, like moving through these these uh, this redemptive movement of, uh, you know, the sin offering and the burnt offering and the uh, peace offering or the ordination offering. You can you can see these patterns wherever you look. Um, and uh, <clears throat> man, I would love to spend more time there, but we have a lot to get through, so let's keep pushing. Uh, verse, we're going to jump down to 35. Do for Aaron and his sons, everything I have commanded you taking seven days to ordain them, sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement, purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it for seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. 
Then the altar will be most holy, and whatever touches it will be holy. Now, something really interesting just happened there. So, first of all, (laughs) yeah, so, yeah, why don't you tell me what you're hearing, Brent, that's sticking out to you? Oh, making atonement for the altar Mm -hmm. is a very weird idea. Yep, and this, again, kind of goes back to that like multi-sided aspect of atonement and why to Reed's question, it was hard to say like, yes, this process is for the person being atoned for because here we see like an inanimate altar is being atoned for. So is that atonement for the altar? Like, no, that doesn't make sense. It's if anything, what's separating it from, uh, you know, maybe, you know, some kind of messiness it, that that's in the people's eyes, not in the eyes of the, the altar itself. Um, so yeah, why does this altar need atonement? And moreover, I think like where else, what else is happening to the altar in this chunk? Uh, it's, I mean, it's being made holy. Mm-hmm. It's being made holy. And not only that, it's made holiest of holies. The word there, or the phrase, uh, Kodesh Kadashim, is the same that's used when they describe the the inner sanctum, the, the room with the ark, as holy of holies. Like, this is the exact same phrase. Like, we need to sit with that for a minute, because that is, that's a lot. That's a lot. So this this process that they're going through for a whole seven days, a whole creation cycle of just reiterating these steps, the priests going through this process, getting blood put all over them. That is a story that is being retold over and over again. And in that process, the, the altar itself is changed and transformed. And, you know, to go back to why the altar needs atonement, it's kind of a question that we've covered on the podcast before, which is like, why does the tabernacle itself need to be atoned for? And part of that is because, you know, like we were just talking about, the priest has to keep their eye on the feast because it's easy in the day to day to associate the tabernacle and the altar with sin, right? To say, oh, that's where I go to take care of my sin. Like, and we do the same thing with, uh, you know, our version of the altar, which is, you know, Jesus's death, burial and resurrection, where a lot of times we look at it and we just have a story about sin. And that's all we really can talk about. That's what most of our theology about that moment is about. And uh, so there needs to be this, this process of showing it move through this, this cycle of, of, uh, you know, sin and dealing with that from like the most, uh, excusable to the least excusable covering like the whole range of our mess, but ending with celebration and reminding us that that's, that's what we actually end with on the path of God. This is taking the, the altar and saying, I know you're going to want to look at it this way, but it, it ends with us feasting that and the, uh, the anointing process, which that won't even come up for uh, a little bit. Uh, I think actually, I think that's next chapter. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, um, that is what makes it holy. That's what makes it holy of holies is that it's a place where people can recognize God's character. They can look at it and say, Oh, Our God is not just about, you know, God isn't some stony faced judge saying, you know, explain yourself, atone for your sins. 
God's there saying like, let's take care of this hurt. Like we need to get this hurt out of the way. We need to get the suffering out of the way, the suffering that's in you, the suffering that you cause in your community on all levels. We need to take care of that. Come over to my house. Let's sit down and eat. Let's maybe we won't eat depending on how bad it is. Let's come over. Let's talk. Let's be in community. And the trajectory that has points straight towards the, the Shalomim offering towards Shalom towards peace. And that is what makes the altar a place where God's presence is as potent as it is over the ark. Like that is a, that is a big statement and, and we're going to have to hold on to it because the rest of this is only going to intensify, uh, this association. Um, and man, I, once again, I hate to move on quick from this. (laughs) Um, uh, one last thing I will say is that, uh, in this case, the holy of holy status given to the altar is qualified by saying that anything touching the altar becomes sanctified, becomes holy. Yeah, that is crazy. And again, that this cuts across the distinction between different types of sacrifices. Um, on a practical level, this meant like if a priest messed up and allowed a a animal with a blemish through, the sacrifice, once it touches the altar, it's considered as if it's good to go. Like it, it's, it's not considered to be unholy or unclean or whatever after it's been placed upon the altar. But I think on a symbolic level, we could also say that uh, just coming into contact with this communal space of the altar, with this priestly space of the altar, with this divine space of the altar, it affects you. It draws you toward God. It, it is this, uh, this force that that pulls you closer to God's presence indelibly. Yeah. And that's, that's opposite of how I think I normally consider things to work. Like Mm -hmm. when something touches something else, it becomes unclean. Mm -hmm. There's not usually this sort of arrangement where touching something actually becomes holy. Yeah. And I mean, and this is kind of where I I start to really get a lot of Jesus-y vibes where it's like, okay, yeah, you can get freaked out about sin and play sin whack-a-mole, but you know, grace is the the after effect of the kingdom because the kingdom just through this process of grace can erase sin um, and be stronger than sin, be stronger than that, that what, like what we were talking about before, that vicious cycle that sin creates where, you know, because it's suffering that creates more suffering, it's easy for that to trigger some kind of vicious cycle. And this is saying like, hey, the the whole, the center of this Mishkan, the center of this sanctuary is a process that does the exact opposite. It doesn't just halt sin. It doesn't just clean it up. It reverses it and creates this system where now you start looking at sin and saying, hey, actually, I'm not scared of that. Maybe I, maybe I mess up again, but now I'm not afraid of it. Now I know uh, that I can just trust in my community and go there. And now we start to see healthier ways of dealing with that suffering of dealing with that sin that actually heals rather than just covers up. Okay, man, I got to stop myself. I'm about to start preaching. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's see. Verse 38. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day two lambs a year old offer one in the morning and the other at twilight mm-hmm. now if we're thinking if, if we're remembering that this is all attached to the creation story 
What are we hearing there? Well, evening and morning, evening although it's morning. reversed. It is reversed. It is reversed. It would be so cool if it was if it was the other way around. Um, but yeah, we have this this reminder of the cycle of evening and morning, morning and evening, and there is a sacrifice brought morning and evening every day. And uh, let's jump down a bit and talk about this sacrifice a little bit more. We are right at the end here and, and we're going to get to the juice. Don't worry. Uh, okay. Jumping down to verse 42 for the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord there. I will meet you and speak to you there. Also, I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Oof, a doof like that man bringing it all home. So there's a lot there that's probably setting off a lot of bells and whistles in people's heads. So let's go back to the beginning because we got a crucial piece of information right at the beginning in uh, verse 42. And what was that? Does anyone recall? We were told what kind of sacrifice this perpetual offering well, uh, is. Oh, it's a burnt, burnt it's offering. A burnt offering. It's the offering that is there for you to be changed, be transformed, no matter what you did, if you're ready to repent, if you're ready to change, if you're ready to offer yourself up worshipfully for, for God to remake and recreate, there is always a sacrifice already, already prepared. You don't even have to bring it. It's already there. It's already on the altar. Like that is grace. That is saying like it, you can just repent. Like we, you don't even have to bring the dang sacrifice. We already got it ready. There is this constant invitation of repentance and change and transformation. And if we remember, and it's not, it's not even like a special grace as they get things figured out after they've come out of Egypt, it says for the generations to come. Exactly. Forever, forever and ever and ever. And what's interesting about this, if we go back to the, that seven day process and the, um, the pattern of the offerings at first to our Western minds, it might seem a little weird. Like if, if on the one side we have the peace offering, which is good, we would expect on the opposite side to be the most serious one, the burnt offering, but it's not, it's the sin offering that comes first. Why? Because the burnt offering is the point where we are actually transformed. That is the bridge between us and, you know, innocently or not, like making mistakes and stumbling through suffering and struggle to actually like getting to that point where we can just be in community and we can just be gathering together to celebrate, not because we have to work through any issues. Um, it is this transformation that is matched up with that creation cycle, evening and morning. It is always being renewed. There's always always, always a moment to incarnate your repentance. Like God is always inviting you to repent, to change, to transform. That is perpetual. That's really big. And I hope we can hear in this that like, again, like 
Jesus did not invent this idea. Paul did not invent this idea. This was here from the beginning. Um, and that offering, that transformation that's made always available, that's that's huge. Uh, but what, what comes after that? I know there's a lot to get through here. So again, man, we got to keep moving. Um, so, uh, it says that it's, it's, uh, a burnt offering continually brought. And then it starts mentioning something about place, which if we remember back to the day of creation that we were talking about, about, the, the fish and the birds and the birds kind of being this image of the priests moving through these high, you know, spiritually elevated special zones, um, but needing to return to the people like place and location and dwelling are very important. So literally right after it talks about the burnt offering, we talk about where God is going to meet them and where does God meet them? The entrance to the tent of meeting. The entrance which man if you remember episode two <laughs> the door the door that is heaven that is between the waters like it's it's saying the exact same thing except this time it's not just talking about the idea of crossing over and being rain and going into those uncomfortable places it's telling the priests whose job it is to do that like Listen, bud, like, yeah, I know there's the Holy of Holies. I know there's the super special VIP spot. But where God actually shows up, where God speaks, it goes on to say, um, that's the doorway, the, the place that's between those two, the place where the people can see, which if we go back to the birds thing, that's the, the dry land. That's where the birds have to live. That's where their blessing is. Not up in the sky and in the high up places no one else can reach, right there at the waterline. Right, right within eye shot of the fish, you know, like that is where God shows up. And yeah, like, man, I, I just kind of want to, I, I feel like I could just read this over and over again. Like we could go through it with a fine tooth comb. Um, one of the other things that sticks out to me is that it talks about how, um, like, not only does God meet the priests at the door to speak with them, that's also where God meets the people. And not only that, we have another confusing thing. We were talking about the how the altar is sanctified through these sacrifices, how the priests are sanctified through the sacrifices. But then here, God kind of throws a wrench in that and says, oh, actually, it's my presence. It's my glory that sanctifies you. Um, and that sanctifies the whole tent and, and, and everything. Man, I'm going to keep messing up sacrifice and sanctify But like, (laughs) do y'all see what I'm pointing at here? Like there's this kind of messiness that God has just introduced where like we might have had this like very, you know, very friendly to us Westerners. Like, oh, God's in A and then there's zone B where only certain personnel are allowed. And then there's zone C and this is the visitation area. And this is where you can go up to the desk and get your paperwork all sorted so you can get your sacrifice going. And God is just like, oh no, I actually hang out at the front of it. And I'm also at the altar. And also I'm the one who's actually sanctifying all of this, but also go through all those ritual motions because that also sanctifies it like my goodness the messiness of grace like what, what are you well, all hearing? yeah i mean i i am hearing what you are saying and <laughs> i it well it reminds me part of what we talked about last time uh this idea that we get where god can't tolerate being in the presence of sin and 
we, you know, we talked about how that doesn't really hold up even with the way that we conceive of like the most holy place. But I really Mm -hmm. liked what you just said. We typically conceive of God as being way in there. And then we have barriers between the people and God and they can only come like what you were just saying. Um, But in fact, God is throughout and especially there at the meeting where every, or at the, at the, the, the entrance to the tent of meeting mm-hmm. where everything is being kind of set apart as holy from the get go. Yes. Uh, and it even just makes me think, um, I mean, it cross references uh, with uh, over in the parables series that, that we did, we were talking about like the role of repentance and is repentance like a gatekeeper. Mm. And I have to repent before God will accept me. Oh yeah. And, and that's like a faulty notion of what repentance is for and how it works and where God is in that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead God is, is right there, you know, at that, at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and repentance is really a way for me to, uh, to apprehend, to come into contact with the grace, the messiness of grace that is always already there. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to, we don't need to mess with having to draw these lines uh, <laughs> to try to make a pro, you know, to make a neat linear process as a, out of, out of all of this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I just, I mean, it's, that's, that is, that is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about in day two, which is like, where is draw, like drawing those lines? It's, it's apparently important to God, but also God makes those lines like, like, perforable like that they're not actually Mm. like we talked about it's not a wall it's a door it's something that is supposed to be yes that's what the priests do they're moving in between those barriers all day and if they're supposed to be images of god well then is it really all that surprising that god would also be moving through those different zones Mm. but here's where like we really gotta talk because in in verse 45 like and 46 God is just like blowing the doors off of this. And like, I feel like God is preaching, you know, like mm-hmm. God is like taking all those themes we talked about between community, between the celebration, between place and dwelling and wraps it all up. He says, I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel, in the midst of the children of Israel, not in the midst of the uh, tabernacle, even though the tabernacle was in the midst of the camp, it was at the exact center. But God frames it as I'm dwelling in the middle of the people. And not only that, uh, I will be to them as God and they will know, yada, they will experience, it'll be a felt reality that I Mm. am Adonai, their God, who took them from the land of Egypt. Now we've heard this before. This is a very common refrain to know that I'm remember what, what I did for them. And here's, I think where it really gets powerful. I took them from the land of Egypt to rest my presence, to dwell in their midst. I'm dwelling in their midst. And that is the whole purpose of me bringing you out of Egypt. Like that, like that is exactly what we were talking about with the peace offerings. And it's exactly the reason that like, that's the real motivation behind the repentance and the sacrifices, it's not to, it's not to, to, you know, punish people. It's not to make people feel awful. It's to actually deal with the mess that's there so that we can just dwell together. All of this is just to strip away everything that does separate us. The hurt that does cause more suffering and more suffering and more suffering. 
That is why we're dealing with this all, not because God hates you until you deal with it. Exactly like what you were saying, uh, Reed, it's not a, it's not a gatekeeper. It's not there to keep us out. It's there so that we can be cleansed, so we can be unburdened, so that we can get to the thing that God actually wants, which is the party, the celebration, which God reduces down and says, you know, it's not even about a big gaudy celebration. It's not even, it's not about the finest wine and the finest food and, it's about just being with you. That is all it is about. That is what the whole Exodus was about. That is why I brought you here. That is why this place is called the Mishkan. It's the same word here, Shakan, to dwell. The Mishkan is like the thesis statement of the Exodus of like, I want to be with you. Here is a, a format, a way to do that. Here are the, the steps of the dance, but the dance is there so I can be with you intimately. That is the whole purpose of all this. And that is what, again, we're talking about filling the space. We talked about the priests, the priests like filling these clothes that are like stars. They're, they're, they communicate with their presence. They give light. They, they help people navigate. But beyond that, now we're to the point, like with day five, where God's bringing actual living, moving things into it and how they live and move is to reinforce this point, this one point that God just wants to dwell in the midst of the people, period. After our hours and hours of study, the fine details throughout <laughs> Exodus and even even in Genesis 1, like all of the materials that were brought together, all of the, the places that were established and the articles that were established mm-hmm. and the offerings and like the simplicity of what it's all about in the end is absolutely striking. Yeah. And this is what's so beautiful. You know, when we talk about partis and the different levels, like it, again, if, if we're just talking about what all this is based on the creation story and the simple Peshat, like meaning of that story, what do we have? We have repetition of rest ending with a day of rest where God just wants to be with us, not to do anything, not to make creation perfect, to, to just take it as it is so we can rest together. And what do we find when we dig eight stories down? Like we find the exact same thing. The the core purpose is not the same. We're being given all these other treasures to help enrich that process, to help us get better at that process. Um, It's like, you know, it's like God is inventing language so that he can tell us, I love you. And it's like, yeah, the language is complicated, but I'm still just trying to tell you the same thing. Mm. Uh, and somehow we are like we have <laughs> we have a, we have a few minutes just to talk about the the incarnation side the practical application which before i get into I want to remind everyone that a lot of what we talked about here is just in the context of spiritual leadership so again grain of salt have some sense of proportion with this but let's kind of just step back go through this uh this chapter from the beginning. So first we had all these sacrifices and I want us to think about, you know, we've talked a lot about the purpose of sacrifices, the, the, like what atonement is supposed to do to us. And I want us to think about this from the uh, priest's point of view now, because that, that might've been some new stuff, but let's think about it from the priest's point of view of trying to facilitate that sacrifice, trying to actually deal with the sin itself. How do we approach it? How do we handle it? What are the, what are the, the steps in that dance? And what I would love for everyone to consider 
when you're thinking about repentance and what that means, whether it's your own repentance or someone who's wronged you and you're trying to help them um, see a healthier way of dealing with it. Um, what if we saw it through the lens, not of, Hey, there's a problem that needs to be solved, which is kind of our cultural baseline. What if the purpose, you know, we talked about how all those sacrifices, what did they do? They made the priest holy and they made the altar holy. The altar being that center place of community where the priests and the people meet. And as we know now, where God's presence is fully ensconced. So what if the way we dealt with sin was focused not on solving a problem, but on making the space of our community holy, making it a space where God's presence is perceptible. It's not about righting every wrong. It's not about making sure every bill is paid. It's not about clearly delineating between the good guys and the bad guys and who's right and who's wrong. It's about making that community and your role in it something that uh, uh, puts God on display, to use our our, uh, favorite phrase, can we, how, how do we deal with sin in a way that keeps that place just brimming with God's presence, makes it holy, makes it set apart from everything else in the world. And to go a little further into that with the whole weird, like ear, thumb and big toe thing, I, I find that that is a helpful, like rubric for me to start thinking through that process. Cause obviously like, you know, we're not going to start cutting up animals, like the actual, uh, steps that they went through in the sacrifice to communicate that message. We, we can't do that. <laughs> That's just, that doesn't work. So for me, the, the whole like ear, what are, what are you listening to your thumb? What are you doing? What are you holding on to? And then your big toe, like, where are you? Where do you go? Those are great lenses to break uh, break down, like, how are you dealing with sin, both your own and other people's? When you're dealing with sin, what's the narrative ringing in your ears? What do you physically do with that? What, what habits do you try and change? And how do you do that? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Where are you spending time in that process? Those are great ways just to get some building blocks into how you, like, First, being aware of how you deal with sin, both yourself and others, how you approach that difficult mess. But then secondly, like, what do you, where do you take it next? Where do you go with it? Um, that That is, uh, for me, really helpful. And, and one other thing that I have to throw in here as we talk about this and when we talk about where you are and the, the whole aspect of dwelling within this is we need to understand that like, particularly if you're an American listener, like culture war and ideology are really, really big ways that, uh, this is broken. Just like we, we have lines that we are not willing to cross because we want to hash out, ideological or culture war type issues before we can even get into these steps. And to some degree, I understand that because like, you know, a lot of times when we're not in the same cultural place as other people, it's like hard to even find common ground. But to whatever degree you are taking on this mantle of, of being part of this nation of priests, of, of being willing to put your own stuff aside, like, what if making the space holy is what led to those issues being dissolved? 
Like, like maybe those issues can't be dealt with if we don't have a space that is holy first. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I, this ties back a little bit to the question of how would you approach and deal with sin if the, you know, if what you're trying to do is make your community like a holy place. Mm -hmm. And it seems like with ideology, it just, it's the idea of what is being separated from what. Mm-hmm. And I think ideology and a certain conception of like sin and what needs to be done with it, it makes like you separated from me yes. where I need to separate you and me, you know, because mm-hmm. there's this dividing line between us. Uh, and uh, the idea how that contrasts with what you're talking about with true atonement, where the idea is to separate uh, sin from like a person from their own sin, you know, mm-hmm. which which actually means like drawing the maybe the two of us together. Yeah. Like I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to bring you in close to me to help you navigate. We talked about this idea of like navigate as a priest, like helping navigate uh, people navigate their own atonement. Mm-hmm. So I don't need to push you away from me because of this or that, but I need, I, there's no dividing line. I want to bring you in close and then help you see or help you navigate an understanding of separating yourself from your sin. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it, I think ideology becomes such a separator, a divider, uh, but it, we want to separate and divide, just not us from one another uh, or us from God. We we want to separate uh, each person. How do I help you walk away or get away from like the sin that is entangling? Yeah. And, and to circle back again, like this isn't to say like if there's someone who's not in the same like culture war space as you, that you are obligated. Like culture war can include a lot of things. It's such a complicated Mm -hmm. thing. Really, I think what is most helpful is to, to like dissect that from the moral conversation or the sin conversation and, Mm -hmm. and look at ideology as another kind of uh, uh, that, where are you, where are you dwelling? Mm. Is this something that you're good at doing just in your own tribe? Or like, are you blind to some of the sin in your own tribe? Uh, Like it's more of a factor that sometimes we just treat as, you know, boundaries that we don't question or think as permeable. And all I'm saying is like, if we're thinking about the narratives we're listening to, and if we're thinking about what we're holding on to and what we're doing with the mess in our lives and others' lives and how we bring it into a sacred space, and if we're thinking about where we are, we shouldn't just be looking at physical space, but also ideological space. Like, where mm-hmm. are you comfortable being? And where maybe do you need to, as like, you know, to use the bird analogy, where do you need to maybe get grounded in the real place that people around you are in. And and it's a delicate conversation there. This is not something you should do in extremes. And uh, it's definitely something you should, you know, feel out with the spirit, but it is something you need to be aware of. Otherwise, just like we were talking about, you're, you're going to get locked into a comfortable spot and you aren't going to be walking around. And that is as a priest, you can't afford to do that. You have to be moving through these spaces and you have to be willing to, uh, like at some level, uh, be uh, willing to overlook your own like personal sense of, well, I, I don't like the way this person handles this or that. Like there's got to be a way for you to start breaking some of those barriers, like just like what you were saying, Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a huge conversation that now I'm going to drop um, <laughs> and uh, move on to the 
the constant, the tamid, that's the Hebrew word for that daily sacrifice, those two daily sacrifices. And the one seed I want to plant there is just really like, where would you, when would you, how would you put a rhythm of transformation, change, repentance in your daily life? Like, what would that look like? Um, and like, what would help you hold on to that and, and extend it to others as well as yourself? And then finally, this whole concept of dwelling. And this, I guess, kind of gets back to the ideology issue. I guess I shouldn't drop it. But anyway, just like pay attention to where you are, where you go, um, who is actually around you. Because a lot of times, again, we we see our immediate community as the people who are at home, the people who are at work, the people we connect with online. And there's a whole lot of other people we walk by every day. You know what I mean? There's a lot of other places we pass through, but we've got our earbuds in, so it doesn't feel like we're actually there, you know? Hey, now. I, who are you look, talking hey, to? I'm, I'm guilty party number one. I'm guilty party number one on that. <laughs> Especially, and like, this is also another thing you have to take it with a grain of salt. When I was <laughs> dealing with freaking cancer, I, you better believe I was not looking to stop and do small talk with anyone. Um, mm, especially in sure. a place where most people just want to talk about cancer. Like that was not fun for me. I had my earphones at 24 seven. Um, and so it's not, this is not like a moral thing, but this is just like, pay, pay attention to that. Um, and, and yeah, along with that, pay attention to like the, I mean, we all know about how easy it is to get in a bubble. Like part of pushing against that isn't just always forcing yourself to go to the most uncomfortable place possible. Rather, it's just like being aware, being like recognizing it and, um, like, and also thinking of it in terms of like this idea of dwelling, like it, it has the sense of like where you live. If we go back to the birds, like their nest isn't in the air. They may identify, they're literally in the Hebrew, their name is flyers. <laughs> they are flyers. They like flying. That's what they do most of the day. But they actually, their home has to be on the ground. And so like, it's important for you to think of like, when you think about space and place and dwelling, like, look at it through the lens of like, where, what do I identify as home? And is that actually where God's blessing is lying? Because for a bird, you may say, yeah, it's the sky. That's my home, baby. But it's like, actually, no, God's blessing is on the ground. That's how you build a nest. That's how you have uh, kids. That's how you can be part of the, the world that God created. Um, so be thinking about that, but most importantly, when we think about dwelling, I I think it's really important that we keep square in our minds. Does the gospel, does the message, does, does what we communicate through our words, through our deeds, through our attitude, through our presence is what we communicate, uh, a story that ends with God just dwelling with you, just wanting to simply be present with you that that shabbat image like is that the end point because god i mean god's here god's talking about sacrifice and sin and the whole shebang and how does god land the plane he lands it on i i went through all this trouble 10 plagues part in the ocean bring you through the desert bring you to sinai deal with the golden calf you now we're building this mishkan and now that i've got your attention now that i've got you in a place where we can be close 
I want to tell you that this is all I really wanted, just to be with you, to be among you. How do we, like, just as much as we pay attention to where we are physically and ideologically and how we move through those spaces, we should also be aware of spiritually where we plant ourselves and where are the trajectory of the story we tell. Where does that end? Does it end here or does it does it end somewhere else? Because if it ends somewhere else, then we are not bringing them to where God is. We are bringing them someplace else. Oh man, no, no shortage of things to wrestle with. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> my goodness. But to be grounded in the simplicity of of knowing that God just wants to dwell with us is incredible. <laughs> I was going to say, in the end, in the end, there's just there's just the one thing. But yes, many things, but just the one. Exactly. That's that's good stuff. That's man. the beautiful paradox. That's good stuff. Oh. And uh, amazingly, we're not even done with the Mishcon. We have two more weeks. <laughs> yes, we have two more uh, weeks. But we are we are done with Reed. Wow. So, ouch. Yes. We, <laughs> done with you. Well, it's been it's been good. It's been fun. I I do appreciate uh, you guys having me on for this. Yeah, this has been great. We we need to do this more often. Yeah, I I love all the host mixing that's been happening in these in these anthologies. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Reed. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been it's been great conversations. Yeah. Uh, two episodes, almost four hours. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, go to go to We've got show notes. Uh, I think we're gonna have a presentation for this. I don't know about this episode in particular, but we've been trying to throw some presentations in there to uh, at least help people figure out how to spell the words and <laughs> do things like that. Um, but that's all on the website uh, or in the show notes. So thanks for joining us on the Baymall Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. We did it. We I cannot believe. <laughs> Not really. You had to leave nine minutes ago, Reed. I know, uh, but I'll still make it. It'll be okay. Um, I'm going to stop recording now. Okay. See ya.